Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Saturday, a friend of mine, Mike Marletto, who I was supposed to have dinner with tonight, but we're not having dinner. Anyway, Mike sent me a clip, and I had talked about the the investigation into the USS Connecticut when it hit a sea mound. And um, and I read it, and I th- you know, just the, the parts that were written about. And I said, you got to be kidding me, right? This is the, I don't know if you'd call them, <clears throat> yeah, I would call them, the premier, you know, service in the Navy. I won't count special operations because they're so small. So, um, so we're going to talk about it on Friday, but I want you to listen to it today. And here's the reason I want you to listen to it. When you hear what goes on, and and what you're going to listen to is, I don't even know the guy's name. I'll find out the guy's name. Maybe I'll get try to get him to come on. But he does a podcast, and he's kind of a dork like me. He starts a podcast about submarine shit. The first time I I saw this guy. That's not going to work. Totally not going to work. <laughs> um, 
Oh, what a shock. Windows update. Last updated three hours ago. Um, all right. The, um, so this guy starts a podcast, um, a YouTube channel devoted to submarines. And, um, and he goes through the investigation in a way that I couldn't, I could never. So, but what I want you to, the reason I want you, I want to listen to it and then we'll talk about it on Friday a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about electronic warfare on Friday too. And then we're going to talk about two short stories. Yeah. Friday's going to be jam packed. Um, So he goes through the investigation and he starts with the investigation like a couple years ago during training when this ship begins to train for its deployments, upcoming deployments. And um, and, and wh what I want you to see in it is we're not talking. The reason this submarine drove into a <clears throat> a undersea mountain was because in the American military, we're really struggling to do the everyday tasks of adult life. And when you read it in this case, it is beyond stunning and so when you add um mccain right you add the uss somerset and what's the other one i can't the fitzgerald you add the fitzgerald And, and again, I still struggle with what happened at the airport. It's not like the American military wasn't blinking red. It had been blinking red for, for days. And we don't take basic force protection measures for our own Marines. And we leave their asses hanging out there. And I don't know who was responsible for that. But I know that when... The threat condition goes up and it's blinking red that there's a suicide bomber around. You do things to mitigate that. I don't know who made that decision. I can't, I haven't got a clear, it, yeah, it was left to that guy. It was left to that girl to keep it open. I I haven't got that, but I would, I would categorize that under the same. Now people would disagree with me and that's fine, but I would. Because I know what units I was associated with did when we got that kind of intelligence. Yeah, we're still out there trying to do good things. But we took care of our Marines. We put them in a, in a, in a place where they could defend themselves. So anyway, um, so I want you to hear this. I mean, it's stunning. The, the, here's what you're going to hear. 
when they went through training, they weren't very good. They had incidents where they the the boat was too boat close to the bottom, and they got yellow lights and red lights, and they didn't really respond to them. The Connecticut hits the pier months before this happens. Hits the fucking pier. And I think, uh, I don't know, Commander, Comp, Subfleet, whatever, wants to wants to discipline the commanding officer, and he gets talked out of it. Right. The morning that they hit this thing, where they're transiting um, on a humanitarian mission, a humanitarian mission. They canceled the navigation brief. Yeah, fuck it. And so you, uh, so I, so anyway, I want you to hear this. And and again, if you're not concerned about the state of the American military, you know, all about being woke, all about extremism. But in terms of can you can you do your job on a daily basis? On a more and more frequent basis, we see these investigations that lead to death or really, really bad stuff. In this case, you know, a strategic asset has to has to go into dry dock for I don't know how long. Right? As they straighten it out put shit back on that got blasted off when it hit a mountain underwater. And you're going to fight a pier like that. Yep. Um, so uh, that's what we're going to do today. We'll check the news and then, then I want you to hear that. And honestly, when you hear it, um, I will tell you, I mean, it's stunning to listen to. And this guy goes through it and uh, he's a submariner, but you'll be able to understand it. And it's just stunning. On Wednesday, what I think I want, what I want to have Grant do is, I'm going to have Grant on. I want Grant to give us a geography lesson. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll put, I'm going to put up a map of the Pacific for everybody. Okay. These things, these places that we talk about, right? Now, for most people, they have this idea of the Pacific Ocean, right? It's this big blue landscape slide. Okay. Where is everything? Where's New Zealand? Well, it's east of Australia. Where? East, east? Northeast? Southeast? Any idea? Most people would look at you and go, uh, do you want me to swag it? No. Tell me what you think. I really have no idea. Okay. Um, and then I want to talk not only geography, where things are. I want to talk why certain things are important. And so, and then on Friday, what I want to do is we we were supposed to talk about the short story, the short happy life of Francis Macomber. Okay. And uh, we never did that. And then Will said, 
Well, I mean, essentially called me an illiterate because I hadn't read The Road to Abilene or, you know, The Trail to Kansas or some bullshit story. So I figured I will read that and then we'll have a discussion about that. And then I want to talk about uh, an article written about electronic warfare in Russia v. Ukraine. So, um, so yeah, I want to do that this week. Maybe I'll get my, maybe I'll get my computer to work too. I don't know though. It seems to be rather problematic at the time. At this time. I can't even get the keyboard to work for God's sakes. All right. But the mouse works. That's important. Okay. So good morning to you. Uh, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Keep your fingers crossed that everything works right here. And uh, then you're going to hear some. But I was fascinated listening to it, by the way. So sub shit. <laughs> This is dedicated to all you uh, all you army types out there who, um, if you're still alive, who participated in the landing at Normandy, which happened 78 years ago today. And uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, I was thinking about that, and. Um, you know, what made us a very different country, we grew up different back then, right? On the heels of the Depression, you know, people had been through a lot already going into the war, and then the war happens. And, uh, but, you know, they, they went they went to church. Divorce was not a part of, uh, of most communities. Happened rarely. And um, as a result, um, the human beings that went on to... F- fight World War II, they were in a lot of different ways stronger than we are today. Uh, What was important was your family, your community. Uh, I don't think anybody talked about how important your feelings were. 
Um, your obligation was really important to your community, to your country, to your family. And so they came home. Why did the Legion and the VFW um, become such big deals across the nation? Because that's where veterans could go to hang out with people like themselves, to have a beer or a bunch of them, um, and be with people like them. Um, it was a safe place. And so those organizations explode across the country. And so... Um, Could the nation mobilize today? I don't know. Pretty scary question. Um, and um, and you look at the state of mental health. I mean, such a fragile population. I was I was bagging on the explosion of electric bikes in the country. Right, we can't even ride a bicycle anymore. It's too difficult. And I'm talking about those electric bikes are a couple thousand dollars. I don't know, at the cheap end, you know, maybe a thousand. And I would tell you, for the most part, it's all I see around where I live. And um, <clears throat> it's absolutely brutal. And so, so then you look at, well, why do we struggle? Why do we struggle so much? Uh, we're, we're a different culture. We're a softer culture. We're we're a more inwardly focused culture uh, with our feelings in in the center of our lives. And when life gets difficult, I mean, in particular, young young people, they don't have the coping skills. Our parenting doesn't prepare them because they get shielded from most everything. Uh, Schools echo that and most of the time make it worse. Your feelings are so important. And then life hits them. And so um, you, when you think back of all the images that go with, you know, the 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 invasion, the largest amphibious, this hurts as a Marine to say this, but the largest amphib- amphibious uh, operation ever conducted on the planet, um, conducted by the Army and the Navy, uh, the epic footage of guys you know, rushing across the beach and taken from the sea and you see a couple go down. Who was that, right? Their life probably ended right at that moment. And um, you look at the toughness that it took to do that. And then what they did when they came home, which was they built the post-World War II world that we all lived in and grew, I lived in and grew up in and and laid the foundation for us to be this this obese slob of a nation that we are today, right? With social media to make everything worse. So it's dedicated to a generation of uh, Americans that is vanishing. Um, we would be, we would do well to study them and emulate a lot of uh, the way they lived their lives. So God bless them for what they did that day. Um, I'm sure that uh, it was not the dream of those young men that went ashore that day to be dead in a national cemetery at a very early age. But their nation needed them, and they went, and um, and they took back uh, Europe from Germany, 
and then uh, ultimately laid the foundation for the post-World War peace that we've lived under for the last 80 years. So God bless them. This is dedicated to them. Betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Alright, we're gonna check the weather. Somebody sent me an email. We'll get to that. We'll do the news real quick and then we'll do uh, we'll dissect another operational uh, clown show but with a U.S. submarine. And uh, it's... Uh, yeah, you're going to find it... Uh, honestly, I believe you're going to find it very interesting. Anyway, currently in Quantico, partly sunny and 75 at Cherry Point down the coast. It is partly sunny, 76. 29 Palms, sunny and 80. Camp Pendleton, clouds and 67. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy, 73. In Okinawa, dark cloudy 76. Manila, dark cloudy 84. Darwin, dark cloudy 79. In Kiev, it is partly sunny at 76. The home of All Marine Radio, cloudy 66 right now. It's been absolutely spectacular here the last week. 
Today it's going to be mostly sunny 76, tomorrow 75, Wednesday 76, Thursday 79, Friday 80. Here's the email. Mac, I'm curious. You and the Mensa seem to take care of yourselves physically. Is there anything that you would recommend to us, in particular in the area of weight loss? Well, I will ask them on Friday. They can give their pointers. Um, when I'm serious about losing weight, Um, I'll tell you what I do. Um, I, I'll just give you my routine, what I eat. All right. So I get up in the morning and uh, I'll have something to drink. And I don't like coffee. And so I'll generally drink um, hot cocoa. So I get my little measuring spoon out and I spoon in. And I think that's 150 calories. And then um, after I get done with this and then I have normally have some computer work to do, I'll eat oatmeal with flax in it, which is good for your digestive system. And I pile as much fruit as I have can get into the bowl into that. Um, and I don't even count fruit as calories, just so you know. So I eat oatmeal. So the oatmeal's maybe what another hundred fifty. Then after I eat that, I drink some Metamucil, and I will tell you, I think this is a secret ingredient to weight loss because, um, bran is tremendously filling, and so you go through the day and you're not you're not starving to death. And I think that's really important because I'm a snacker by trade and I have a sweet tooth. I have a sweet tooth. And um, I'm, that's bad, right? That's bad uh, when you're trying to lose weight. And so, um, so yeah, the Metamucil is is to me it's a secret ingredient. It's the secret sauce. And so you go through the rest of your day, you're not hungry. And then earlier rather than later, I uh I I'll make this spinach salad that I make. And uh so I'll take baby spinach and I I don't want to say I shred it, but I cut it up into smaller pieces. Um, I'll throw some romaine lettuce because I like romaine lettuce. I take uh, cherry tomatoes. I cut them up. I take about a third of an avocado, and I cut that up, and I throw it in there. I take about half a piece of bacon, and I crumble that up and throw it in there. So the avocado, there's not very much in there, but there's enough to give it flavor. Um, what else do I put in there? Tomato, bacon, avocado, and then like that, tor those uh, tortilla strips. I mash those up and I sprinkle those in there and I use whatever salad dressing I want. 
And the salad dressing is important because um, you put it on when there's nothing else in the bowl, and then you mix it up so you don't have to put uh, you know a lot on, and then you mix it up so that it it's all throughout the salad. I think that's important. So, and then the other thing I do because I, I have a sweet tooth is I eat popsicles. Yeah, popsicles are 40 calories a piece. I like red and orange the best. Mm -hmm. Cherry and orange, I guess. So when I'm serious about losing weight, um, that's what I do. And the thing is, uh, all that stuff tastes good. Uh, The Metamucil and the brand uh, means I'm not starving all day. Because when I'm starving, I head for chips and salsa. God forbid that's in the house. Um, or the other thing, Colleen works at a Greek restaurant, and I will eat um, pita bread with um, this spicy hummus that they make. And it has jalapeno in it. It's delicious. I told the owner, man, you should sell this stuff in stores. It's the best. So I've learned to like that too. Uh, so you heat up the pita bread, and you, the spicy hummus is delicious. So anyway... Um, yeah, I'm not afraid to binge on that too. So, um, when I'm serious about losing weight, that's how I do it. And I would tell you that's easily less than a thousand calories. But the important part to me is that it tastes good and I like eating it. Let me tell you, that spinach salad with a little bit of bacon, a little bit of avocado, cherries. Oh, the other thing I put in there is an egg. So, I mean, I don't know. What is that total? It might be 300, 400 calories. But it's it's good and it's filling. And let me tell you, I don't make that salad small. I make it big. You know, so there's a lot of spinach in it, a lot of romaine lettuce in it. So, yeah, when I'm serious about losing weight, kaboom. Yeah. Um, in case, yes. But I will ask the, I will ask the, the rest of the... Um, Mensa quad about uh, what they think. Um, top stories of Stars and Stripes. Crowds honor World War II veterans at Normandy D-Day celebration. Here's another story, and I just don't understand it. Military families not having enough food is a national security issue, a report says. How? Like, if you find a military family that doesn't have enough food, there's something wrong there. Something really wrong in that family. Okay? All right, that's in Stars and Stripes. Uh, Top headline in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Elon Musk threatens to end the Twitter deal over data requests. Kind of interesting story here. Um, He's accused Twitter of not complying with his request for data on the number of spam and fake accounts on the social media platform. And then there's a uh, a second story that said Elon Musk's bar- bot problem on Twitter is extraordinary. 
the story starts off like this. Elon Musk's battle with bots on Twitter is personal. All right. Let me give you the definition of what a bot is. If my keyboard will work. Bots typically imitate or replace human user behavior. Because they are automated, they operate much faster than human users. They carry out useful functions such as customer service or indexing search engines. But they can also come in the form of malware used to gain total control over computers. So so bots, a, a Twitter account could be a bot account, right? When you see this, do this. Okay, so those are bots. Anyway, Elon Musk's battle with bots on Twitter is personal. In the three weeks since Mr. Musk cited fake accounts as a reason for putting his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter on hold, observers and participants in the, in the deal have puzzled over the thinking behind the tycoon's comments. The issue isn't new for Mr. Musk, who has complained for years about Twitter's ability to measure and manage automated accounts on the platform that often produce spam. Whatever his intention in raising the issue, it's clear that Mr. Musk has an, has an unusually extensive interaction with bots. As a habitual Twitter, as a habitual tweeter with more than 95 million followers, the Tesla CEO likely has a far greater exposure and experience with fake and spam accounts than most on the social media platform. One estimate says spam, fake, or inactive accounts make up the vast majority of his followers. Mr. Musk is, quote, an outlier among outliers, end quote, says Darius Kuzemi, a computer programmer who has spent a decade creating and studying bots and is currently a senior software engineer at Meaden, a technology nonprofit that aims to combat misinformation. Quote, his experience is going to be different from not just the average user, but the average celebrity. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, so he's ripping, right, ripping the the curtain off of one social media giant. Next headline, Russian workers pick up the pieces after, or Chernobyl workers pick up the pieces after Russian occupation. Next headline, Americans sour over the economy and politics. Americans are deeply pessimistic about the U.S. economy and view the nation as sharply divided over its most important values, according to a new Wall Street Journal NORC poll. I don't know what NORC means. The findings are from a journal survey conducted with NORC at the University of Chicago, a nonpartisan research organization that measures social attitudes. The survey found Americans in a sour mood and registering some of the highest levels of economic dissatisfaction in years. The pessimism extended beyond the current economy to include doubts about the nation's political system. How about that? 
its role as a global leader and its ability to help most people achieve the American dream. Some 83% of respondents described the state of the economy as poor or not so good. More than one third or 35% said they aren't satisfied at all with their financial situation. That was the highest level of dissatisfaction since Nork began asking the questions every few years starting in 1972 as part of a general social survey. And mind you this, those numbers will only get worse as we go through whatever's going to happen relative to um, the gas issue, which has no signs of getting better. How about this? For the New York Times top story, Russia seeks buyers for stolen Ukrainian grain. <laughs> American diplomats diplomats have alerted 14 countries, most in Africa, that Russian ships filled with plundered Ukrainian grade could be headed their way. The situation poses a dilemma for countries facing dire food shortages as one-tenth of the global wheat exports come from Ukraine. Top story in Washington Post is more traditional coronavirus shot could be available this summer. The United Kingdom pledges rocket systems after Putin threatens the West. Top story in USNI News this morning is the Navy has identified uh, a pilot that was killed in a Super Hornet crash. His name is Lieutenant Richard Bullock. He died on June 3rd after his FA-18E Super Hornet crash. He was based at Lemoore Air Station in Lemoore, California. Assigned to VFA 113. He was on a he was flying on a routine training mission and crashed around 2.30 p.m. near Trona, California. The investigation's ongoing. And for those of you who know where it is, um, that's near China Lake. Chinese and Russian warships continue to exercise near Japan, just to let everybody know. Top story in Marine Corps Times this Monday morning is a look back, June 6, 1944, the Allies storm Normandy. And again, I mean, if... uh, you know, if you if you want to take a great look at it and uh, watch Band of Brothers, 
Um, it is, and, and you know, what's interesting, I would tell you, is um, watch it with an eye towards mental health and watch how much mental health stuff is in there. Pretty amazing. Top five stories in early bird this morning before we do sub stuff. Military families not having enough food is a national security issue. Somebody has to explain that to me. How does how do they not have enough food? I don't get it. Uh, VA officials lagging in goal of housing 38,000 distressed vets this year. Yeah, you know, again, a lot of the people that are homeless, um, you know, that's mental health stuff. And you can build, you can have homes and it be available to them, and I'm not sure they're going. Historically, they don't go. Marine Corps Reserve gets a new mission, new roles, and a whole new design. Active duty Marine Corps force planners are, perhaps for the first time, looking to, re- to the reserve side to take an operational, experimental, and capabilities and roles at a level the component hasn't faced. Holy shit, who would have thought this? Next story, Navy identifies pilot. I'm sorry, special warfare sailor who died Friday in a vehicle accident. Next story, Russian invasion of Ukraine sparks renewed interest in striker protection system. So striker protection system is a protection system for armored vehicles. And so we talk about, you know, this whole discussion of of the tank is dead, right? Until, (laughs) until somebody invents the next thing that jams those munitions. And then all of a sudden the tank ain't dead anymore. So anyway, now the next thing you're going to hear is a, uh, is something that is, uh, I, I found fascinating. And this is a look at, um, the USS Connecticut running, running aground. Uh, or running into a seamount. Okay, I will get the guy's name and I'll put the link up to where I got this. And, um, and yeah, yeah I, and, and again, the reason you need to listen to it is that, you know, I mean, the sub force has always been this elite service, right? And then you're going to hear this and you're going to see the same affliction that we see in the surface fleet the same thing that we saw in one meth when eight Marines and a sailor drowned off the coast of California, which was resident, the, the dysfunction of the USS Somerset, the, the dysfunction of the USS Fitzgerald, the dysfunction of the USS McCain. And we're not, and again, we're not talking about them doing, you know, crazy things. We're talking about driving ships. We're talking about launching and recovering Amtraks. We're talking about the very, very basic components of military operations. So have a listen to this. This is a guy by the name of 
Aaron Amick, A-M-I-C-K. Aaron is a retired United States Navy submariner sonar man. Okay. He has a website called subbrief.com. And he talks about submarines. So, without further ado, Aaron Amick, United States Navy, retired. Welcome to the USS Connecticut's final investigation report. Everything you're about to hear is from the declassified final investigation report that's been fully redacted by the United States Navy. And I'm here to share it with you today because it's quite a story. Let's go ahead and begin. So, if you're not aware, on the 2nd of October of 2021, the Connecticut struck an undersea bathymetric feature. Um, that's kind of their way of saying something underwater that wasn't moving. Uh, another way of saying that is the earth or the ground, you know, a grounding occurred. Now, this mishap, according to the Navy, was preventable. Uh, the result of this was an accumulation of errors that we're going to talk about today, omissions, which are really important, and of course, overall performance from key people on board led to this uh, bathymetric feature being run into. Uh, the Connecticut is available for operations for an extended period of time, including the time of this recording, even though it's been seven or eight months now. Long time. All right, let's go back to the beginning and talk about all the players involved, the key players involved. Obviously, the entire crew is involved. But at the very top, you have the commanding officer right there. He is responsible for the performance of his ship, the safety of his crew, and bringing the ship back undamaged. Also, things like not getting counterdetected and things like that are important in the submarine field. So he's responsible for all that. Underneath him is the executive officer, commonly spoken XO. Now, the XO in our story today will also be playing the part of the command duty officer. Command duty officer is somebody who, when this commanding officer is not on the con, you know, doing his thing, the XO can go and make himself the command duty officer and kind of take on that role, giving the captain some reprieve. But know this, every officer of the deck that we're going to get into is a representative of the commanding officer's uh, authority. So it's as if the CO is there, uh, but it's just a different person holding them. Uh, the CDO is a position between those, those two. Alongside the XO, but on the enlisted side, is the chief of the boat, commonly spoken Cobb. And he's the senior enlisted advisor to the captain. And that's why I put him here next to the XO, because the XO is the senior uh, officer advisor to the captain. And they uh, often advise the captain together at the same time daily on what's going on with the crew and how things are going. So they both play very important roles. Below them are the department heads. These are the weapons officer, the navigator, and the uh, engineer. Uh, today's story will also have an operational safety officer and an operations officer that was uh, temporarily assigned for this cruise. And we'll get into that. So below the department heads, the on watch people that we need to know the names of are the ANAV and the quartermaster. When I say names, I just mean their titles. The names of everybody except the captain and the cob have been redacted for privacy. And we're not going to violate any of that today. Yeah, we're just going to read from the report. Let's get started. We're going to start in July 2020. This grounding kind of began all the way back then, over a year before it actually happened. This is Submarine Training Facility, San Diego, California, a very important training facility on the West Coast. I spent a lot of time here myself. So what the 
crew is being trained on before they go on their underway is uh, theater commander guidance, making sure that they're compliant with that. This is all happening in classrooms and in simulators, things like this. So this is an ashore facility that the crew goes to to get this training done. Uh, they also practice uh, or they review recent own ship evaluations to see where they're weak and where they're strong. And they try to bring the weak points up. Comsub pack for the Pacific Fleet also has guidance. They're, you know, trained on that core competencies, basic submarining, seamanship, communications, professionalism. That all is uh, under that mission areas. Where are they going to be operating? Where are the likely operating areas? Because at this time, they probably don't have a specific mission. So they're going to go over where um, they may be deployed and learn about oceanography, topography, depending on their jobs. Um, that's going to be very important. Recent operations. They'll take a look at the Connecticut's previous deployments and see how they did. What was their most recent combat certification score? And where were those weak areas? What do they need to improve on? All that comes in. Also, the captain of the Connecticut can submit to the training facility things that he wants his crew to get better at. That's very important to them. So he does that. And then finally, deployment lessons learned. And this can be for the ship. It can be fleet-wide uh, and then it kind of wraps it up. So this is a lot of training that happens before they even go back to the submarine and take it underway again. Okay, in July 2020, uh, training begins. Or the training is ended and uh, the results are in. And here we have the squadron admiral formally counsels in writing the commanding officer. He sends a letter of performance into his record and gives it to him uh, as well for inadequate supervisory oversight. He's noticing some problems with this USS Connecticut command, ineffective accountability of practices. So if they even find a weakness, they don't necessarily address it. There's no accountability on the USS Connecticut, according to the um, CSDS. Uh, superficial self-assessments. In other words, whenever they do their own self-assessment, they write it up. They make sure the you know, I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and then they file it away and never to be addressed again. And honestly, self-assessment is only one step in the process of getting better. You have to implement policies and changes and then act on those things to actually make improvements. Well, they're just doing a superficial self-assessment according to uh, the squadron commander. So on the 16th of February, 2021, we're going to fast forward into 2021. CSDS issues a, a letter of instruction because they still have not acted on his previous uh, letter. So the CO is directed to address the crew's overall performance. Um, he's you know, saying there's a lack of improvement since the last time we uh, talked. You haven't made the changes that I recommended six months ago. So here's a letter of instruction. This is a formal military letter that says thou shalt do X, Y, and Z. And uh, finally, he says, this is because you're getting this letter because of your reluctance to accept feedback. And this is something that I've seen in the Navy going back decades because I was in the Navy a long time ago at this point. Um, there are some commands where they just don't accept the schoolhouse or the training facilities feedback as well as other commands do. And it's it's a little bit of confidence, which is good. You need confidence, but it's also a little bit of arrogance. And that's not as good. That can be, you know, detrimental to everyone's uh, performance, you know, getting better. If you think you're already as good as anybody else is going to make you, you know, there's no need to in, improve. And so the, uh, the uh, squadron commander is accusing this commanding officer of having that mentality. So he issues this letter of instruction in February 2021 to address those issues formally. 
Okay. And now 14 of April, 2021, while pulling alongside a pier in San Diego, California, they strike the pier. In uh, nautical terms, it's called alighted or they allied with the uh, the pier. Uh, the only reason why it's not called a collision is a collision happens between two moving objects at sea. The pier is a static object. Therefore, it's not technically a collision or yeah, it's a, it's an alighting. They, an easier way to say it is they struck the pier. So they immediately went into a safety stand down, which is where you don't do any work on the ships. Work still has to be done, but you're not doing it today and maybe not even tomorrow. Some safety stand downs can last a week and that pushes all the work that was supposed to be done on that week to the next week in the weekend as well, because it's got to get done, but you're not allowed to work at all. Everyone puts their tools down during a safety stand down. It's a real pain for the enlisted men, but it's important. They just hit a pier. So uh, they're going to go over things like danger recognition, risk management for everybody. Everybody on board a submarine is uh, trained in skill management or risk management rather. Formality, communications. Formality is really important on a submarine because you've got to be able to say the same things the same way as people expect to hear them and not random or different every single time. Because whenever a casualty happens, you need that instinct to report things in the right order. And the person listening during the casualty who has all this adrenaline running in their body, they need to be able to listen and expect the reports in the order that they expect to hear them. That way there's no miscommunication or less likely to have miscommunication. Formality and formality in communications, very important. And then basic watch standing skills. And uh, they also conduct a command investigation as to what happened whenever they were pulling alongside the beer, a pier rather. The result of this investigation is that the navigator from the USS Toledo at this time, which is in a dry dock maintenance availability, he's not going to sea and he's a navigator, right? He is assigned to uh, the USS Connecticut and he's supposed to, he's going to be the ops officer. So he's ops in our story today. And he, his sole purpose is to assist them with these things. And he's an additional navigator. So maybe they won't run into something. So on the 18th of May, 2021, um, uh, Com Submarine Development Squadron 5 uh, Allied Evaluation comes out. This is them striking the pier. And he says uh, the pier could have been striking the pier could have been prevented. Uh, his recommendation, this is like the uh, the commander of the squadron of the three submarines in CSDS-5. For a little bit of backstory, CSDS-5 is Seawolf, Connecticut, and Jimmy Carter, and that's it. They're the development squadron. If you... <laughs> If you want to join the Navy, get into a development squadron because they do the best missions. Okay. But CSDS-5 made up of three submarines, all Seawolf class. All right. He's saying, well, my commander on the USS Connecticut is having problems. And I recommend disciplinary action because he's already done a letter of instruction. He's already done, you know, a letter of condemnation into his, uh, into his record. His, his only, his next step is a disciplinary action, but this one is for everybody involved in the striking of the pier, the CO, the XO, the navigator, the officer, of the deck at the time, which is not named. So I don't know who it is. And then, and also the ANAV, they're all going to get disciplinary if his recommendation is followed and approved by higher ups, uh, the charges dereliction of duty. That's a UCMJ violation. That's pretty significant. That's like article 92 stuff. That's, that's, that's a big one in the, in the Navy terms. Okay. Uh, on the 19th, the very next day, he informs comm sub pack. That's the submarine admiral for all Pacific fleet. Okay. Of under which he's under and also commander task force 74. You want to remember these names because these guys are really involved in what happens next. So uh, Commander Task Force 74, he's overstationed in Japan. And then Comsub Pack, he's responsible for the entire submarine force of the Pacific Fleet.
All right, so the next day, the 20th of May, our hard-nosed commander of... Uh, uh, Commander Submarine Squadron, Development Squadron 5, has a sudden reversal after talking to Comsub Pack and CTF-74. He comes back, and I have to quote this. I can't paraphrase this. He comes back after writing a letter of an instruction, condemnation, and recommending disciplinary action to the very next day, writing this. This is a recommendation for the USS Connecticut. He says, while this investigation of striking the pair revealed degrading standards in navigation planning, poor seamanship, and an ineffective command and control. It represented an anomalous performance and not a systematic failure. Quote, I observed a safe landing from the bridge of the USS Connecticut on the 13th of May, 2021, indicating that the appropriate reflection and training of the crew uh, with completion of the pre-overseas movement eval, POM eval, uh, on 14 May 2021, I certified the safe navigation of the ship through all phases of submarine operation. So after almost a year of condemnation of saying you're not taking the right steps, you're not improving, they hit up here, you know, there's things going wrong on this command. And the guy, the only guy who's saying anything formally about this, addressing this issue, is suddenly on board with it. They, they, they pull into San Diego one time without hitting the pier, and he's like, well, we're good to go, I guess. So what happened? What happened in that conversation between him and ComSub Pack, him and CTF-74 over in Japan? What was said on that Zoom call? Well, something that changed this man's mind. That's what was said. And he was relieved. The one guy saying that, hey, the Connecticut, not a good command right now. They're not able to navigate safely gets relieved. Now, I'm not sure if this was a scheduled relief or if this was a uh, disciplinary relief that is not outlined in the uh, investigation. So I'm going to say that this was a scheduled change of command and this was his last day at work. And that's why he wrote this, this report anyway. So he, he's out of the picture. He's like, not my problem anymore. See ya. So come sub pack steps in uh, because the incoming commanding officer has to get his feet under him, right? He's not ready to take on all this drama. So comm sub pack says, listen, I certify the USS Connecticut for deployment. He formally counsels the COXO nav weps officer of the deck and the ANAV. Okay. So that's another piece of paper in the record. These guys at this point have more counseling sheets than a seaman after a Liberty call in a foreign port. And he says there will be a mid deployment check ride to ensure improvement. This is the one really good decision that I think comm sub pack makes at this point. He says, you're about to go on a six month or greater mission, you know, in the, in the Western Pacific, somewhere between month two and month four, we're going to do an inspection and make sure everything's okay. So that's a good idea. It's not all bad news at this point. Okay. So let's fast forward to the 26th of May, 2021. Uh, the USS Connecticut has pre-underway checks complete. Uh, at this point, the four, the forward bottom sounder is fully operational. Okay, and that becomes important later on. Uh, on the 27th of May, it deploys ahead of schedule. And on the 24th of June, almost a month later, ComSubPAC makes the final endorsement on the striking of the peer investigation, saying that's behind us. You guys are, you know, cleared for deployment and off they go. Again, that didn't happen for, until June. 
Okay, so the mid-deployment checkride does happen. They get on, they do fire drills, they you know interview the crew, they inspect the service records, the medical records, make sure all the paperwork and administration is good. And then they also run some weapons drills and navigation drills. Navigation drills include uh, red and yellow soundings or indications that you're not transiting safely. There's all sorts of things that they can simulate. This, In this case, according to the investigation, among all the other things they did, they also simulated red and yellow soundings, which in without going into any detail, because I don't know how much I can talk about it, is uh, they're simulating the bottom being more shallow than expected. And I won't go into any more detail than that, but that's what the red and yellow soundings in general mean. Okay, the crew did not investigate during the inspection. With the inspectors on board, watching over their shoulder, they got the red and yellow sounding. They, they recognized the red and yellow sounding. They called it away, but then they didn't investigate why. You know, I guess, you know, it's a little bit of... Um, you know, whenever you're in a drill and you see the real indication is fine, but then you have the drill monitor handing you a piece of paper showing you what is the, supposed to be the indication so the drill can happen. Well, they acknowledged the piece of paper essentially and then just left it at that. And the reason why that's a little funny is there's required actions that happens with a yellow sounding and then another set of actions that happens with a red sounding. And they're very important actions. They didn't do any of that stuff. So I'm sure the drill monitors were furiously taking notes saying these guys do not understand how to respond to these navigational drills. Okay. And I think the evidence will show that they were right. All right. Uh, so no additional crew uh, deficiencies other than this navigational hiccup where they just didn't respond to the red and yellow soundings, which blows my mind as a, as a sailor. Um, so the forward bottom sounder at this point at the midpoint of their deployment during this inspection is not working again. So they're having problems with that forward sounder. The bottom sounder is very important because that tells you how the how much depth you have between the keel and the bottom of the ocean. And they have two of these sounders, one forward, one aft, separated by the length of the boat, right? So they just use the, the aft sounder and everything's fine, right? It's not a big deal. It's a, it's a noted, you know, mechanical failure. They're going to get it fixed whenever they pull into port. Uh, all the communications to get the, the part into Guam, whenever they eventually pull in, whenever that is, uh, will be there on the pier ready, ready and waiting, and they'll just get it repaired. So, and that's all documented. That's fine. The point is they're using the second of two sounders. You know, they're down to one. So they don't want that one to fail, right? They're just using that aft one. All right, so let's move on to the day of the event, okay? So this is uh, 2300 uh, Zulu, uh, I guess because it's right before midnight, technically the day before the event, by 30 minutes. Now, I need to explain real quick Zulu time. Submarines, whenever they go to sea, they go off their local time, whether it's you know West Coast time, East Coast time, doesn't matter, and they go to Zulu time. So Zulu time is based on GMT, um, Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, today, I believe it's known as UTC, uh, Universal Time Code, whatever the C means. Uh, anyway, so it's that. So they're in the Pacific with a time code that on the surface is based out of London, right? So don't confuse just because it's, uh, you know, 1130 watch time in the middle of the, quote, night for the submarine that's submerged with no sense of day or night. Uh, Topside, it's a different time, totally, okay? And that's not even an important point to understand. Just know that as far as we're concerned, it's 1130 at night, okay? And it's been that way for months because we're going into month whatever of this deployment. Okay, the C the XO is the CDO on the con, remember? I told you when the captain's not there, the XO can and often does assign himself as command duty officer alongside the officer of the deck, who is the engineer. 
This watch section's name, there's three watch sections that rotate. This is watch section harder, okay? That's the name that they gave themselves, and they're, they're the harder watch section. Okay, so it's 0115 in the morning. They're cruising along submerged. Everything's, you know, happy. The quartermaster, he's taking his soundings as he's required. The one at 0115, he doesn't get a return. And he's not allowed to change modes because they're, you know, in a specific, they're in a deployment lineup, basically. So, you know, he just does it again and again and again. He's not getting a return. He's like, ah. So he goes back to his navigational log. Quartermaster has their own log, a ship's log, a very important log. And uh, he logs, hey, no, no sounding. Uh, the aft bottom sounder operation is degraded above 16 knots. This note is in the uh, inspection, implying that they're doing something above 16 knots at this point. So we're going to assume that, okay? They're doing some speed above 16 knots, and he notes in the log, unable to get sounding due to speed above 16 knots. Okay, the quartermaster uh, did not take required actions for loss of sounding, including informing the officer of the deck. He was like, no sounding, make a note in the log, back to doing quartermaster things. Uh, that's a, an egregious violation. If you have a secret, you don't want to be the guy holding it. You want to share that information with everybody, especially the officer of the deck. He's the guy that needs to know uh, that we don't know how much water we have below us starting at 0115 in the morning. Okay. All right. So uh, at 0145, uh, 30 minutes later, uh, the he attempts to make another sounding. The sounding fails. He makes a note in the log. Oh, no. This time he doesn't make any note in the log. He just no, no, no action. So the log, the ship's log needs to have the sounding if they don't have a separate log for it in, in the ship's log, you know, uh, at the very least there should be a fathometer log that, that, that has it. And, and they don't, he just doesn't write it down anywhere. He does it again at uh, zero 0200 in the morning, takes a sounding, no return, does nothing, tells no one. I don't know what this quartermaster is thinking at this point, but he's really letting down the safety of everybody on board at this point. All right, at 0323 in the morning, this is in the ship's log, the XO says, I secure myself as the command duty officer. Uh, you know, the officer of the deck uh, has the helm in the con, and, uh, you know, he, he secures himself and goes off to the wreck because it's in the middle of the morning, right? He's got a whole workday ahead of him. The XO, by the way, um, along with the captain to an extent, but the XO especially, one of the hardest working people on board in terms of uh, lack of sleep. They, they are by far the awake the longest, him and maybe even the cob, but depending on the boat you're on. But the XOs that I've always worked with, they seem to always be up. And if, you know, even if they're in their stateroom, they're working on administration duties and stuff like that. And so I'm sure this guy's really tired at this time, three o'clock in the morning. He's going to go lay down for an hour or two so he can get up and start a whole new workday again. All right. But also the XO, who's the CDO or was, was not aware of the lack of soundings now for an hour and a half, two hours and a half. Anyway, almost two hours, right? A, a long time. So let's talk about voyage management real quick. Okay. The chart uh, was not properly marked. We're going to start with the things that are wrong with the chart. Uh, there's something called the VMS that's voyage management system. And the chart is not properly marked with uh, underwater danger and hazard marks uh, as it's supposed to be. So the investigation found out that there was at least five navigational hazards that were not marked along the subs current path. Okay. So the submarine's going to go through five navigational hazard zones, not one or two, but five of them. And it's not even marked on the map. Now the chart, the reason why, you know, it's a, a hazard zone is the chart comes with these danger hazard zones marked on it already, but it is the responsibility of the ANAV and the quartermaster to do an overlay in VMS that outlines it. Okay. And they did not do that. That's what the investigation said. 
Okay, should have been marked as stay out and the other areas marked as stay out. And so uh, you have hazard areas and navigation hazards. They both need to be marked as stay out. Uh, the OD did not report these nav hazards to the commanding officer. Now, the commanding officer who approved the chart and the voyage plan probably knew about it. And I believe in his second interview to the investigative team, he did say that he was aware of these hazards and he expected his watch teams to navigate around them. That's putting a lot of responsibility on your officer of the deck, your ANAV and your quartermaster. And, uh, you know, they could probably safely in, in good circumstances do that. But we have a quartermaster that's not had a sounding in a couple hours and he's not telling anybody. And we have a chart that's not properly overlaid and marked. And we have a captain that's like, you guys take care of it. He didn't even say that, but that was his, that was his approach to this situation. So you can see how these things can go wrong quick, right? So at 0424, the ANAV directs the quartermaster to remove stay out from overlays. So there were some areas on this chart that did have the overlay on that had, hey, stay out of this area. Okay, but there were still five that did not, that were supposed to, that did not have that. But no one knows why the ANAV made this decision. Why would you ever uh, move a stay out area overlay? Uh, the quartermaster, because he was ordered to do it, he just did it. And later on when he was interviewed, he didn't know why he did it. He just knew that he was told to remove these overlays. Anyway, so we have an ANAV and a quartermaster acting strangely, and certainly in the quartermaster's case, not in accordance with standard submarine operating you know, pr procedures. And the most important thing is the watch section used a temporary route instead of updating an approved nav plan. And in the final, you know, investigation, you know, summary, they, they pointed this out as being the primary reason or among all the primary reasons, this is the most, you know, one that influenced the uh, collision is that the quartermaster working presumably with the ANAV and maybe not even informing the officer of the deck was plotting a temporary route off the course that was the approved route on the chart from the commanding officer without telling the commanding officer. We know for sure the captain did not know this, but then again, the captain told the investigators he expects his navigation team to navigate the submarine around navigational hazards marked on the chart. So, but that is not in accordance with the SOM, that's for sure. Submarine operating manual. All right, okay, 0500. That XO's only had like 90 minutes of sleep at this point, but everybody's getting up and they're gonna do their daily operations brief. It is the 2nd of October, 2001. This is the day of the event, 0500. Everybody's in the wardroom. You got the captain, the XO, chief of the boat, navigator, ops. That's the navigator from the, uh, the Tulsa. We have the uh, operations safety officer, who's another officer on board the boat. He's responsible for safety, you know, for the entire command. The ANAV and the Accent Sonar Rider is there too. And they're gonna do a daily brief of what they expect to happen today. For whatever reason, and we don't know, it's not said in the investigation report, the CO, whenever the safety brief is supposed to begin, he says to the safety officer that today's briefing is not required nor desired. So there is no brief. Nobody says anything. We don't know when the last sounding was reported to the officer of the deck. We know that we have a couple hours of no soundings. Nobody knows the true depth between the keel and the bottom of the submarine at, at this time. 
Certainly not the captain. No one's reported anything to him yet. And that's because there's a lack of communication between the quartermaster who's operating the fathometer without success and the officer of the deck. It's not going past that point. All right. So uh, the briefing is adjourned without update. Um, This is normally when breakfast is served. So we assume breakfast at this time. Uh, No one is aware of the loss of sounding from 115, like I said. And uh, the ANAV uh, did remove the overlays from the VMS and didn't tell anybody. So the navigation team is kind of operating by themselves. Friends would walk up to me and just be like, what the f*** is in your mug? And I would just tell them, it's mud. And things are not going right, and they're not telling anybody. 30 minutes later, watch section trigger comes on board. So this is the normal rotation, I guess. Uh, at 040 uh, Zulu, uh, the quartermaster reports to the OD, sounding does not check with chart. So uh, since this is a new watch section, it's probably... You know, a, a new quartermaster for sure. Uh, the ANAV would always be the ANAV. The ANAV is a position on board, not a rotation. So, so the ANAV is uh, still the same guy. But the new quartermaster says, "Hey, we don't have soundings." And then uh, he goes back and he looks at the history and he's like, "We haven't had a sounding for over thirty minutes as of uh, five forty Zulu." So the officer, of the deck, and the quartermaster uh, acknowledge that there's no sounding for thirty minutes, and then they don't tell anybody. They don't. This new watch section takes no action. And if you go back to when they had the mid-deployment inspection, that's the same thing that they did is they acknowledged the yellow and the red soundings that were unexpected and did took, took, took they acknowledged them and took no action. If you go back to their pre-deployment training, back to whenever CSDS-5 uh, was saying, hey, you guys don't respond to feedback and you don't correct yourself and you don't investigate red soundings. Going all the way back to pre-deployment training, they weren't doing that. And whenever it actually happens at sea, guess what? They take no action other than acknowledging the unexpected, or in this case, lack of soundings for uh, 30 minutes at this point. All right. So the commanding officer is unaware of a nearby navigational hazard that is now not marked on the overlay anymore because the ANF t- took it off and is getting unexpected soundings or uh, lack of soundings. You know, whenever they do get a sounding, it doesn't check with chart. That's really important. That means you're not where you think you are. <laughs> okay. Uh, the 0616 nav, the ANAV recommends changing transmission modes on the fathometer. And I'm not going to go into why that's important. Um, just know that they can't do that without the captain's permission. Uh, but there was like a temporary standing order in this case that said that they could do it without getting captain's permission. So I guess that's there, there, there was an exception where they didn't need the commanding officer's permission to do this, but they were waiting to get commanding officer's permission to change transmission modes to see if they could get a better return. One that checks with chart, you know, and, uh, so at zero six eighteen, two minutes later, sonar announces there is a broad and diffuse trace off the bow. It sounds like biologics, but what it really is, it's own ship's noise reflecting off a bathymetric feature right in front of them. And they run into it at greater than 16 knots. So the investigative report uh, makes a comment that uh, the sounder was not functioning, uh, should have functioned properly up to 24 knots. So out of the investigation, we could assume that they were operating somewhere between greater than 16 knots and maybe 24 knots, but we really don't know. And that's not important. Just know that they weren't going slow whenever this collision happened at 0618 Zulu, you know. All right. So some immediate actions happened. Uh, 
The helm, as you see here, pulls full rise on the stern planes. The officer of the deck who is injured in the collision, he's bounced all around, uh, orders you know, from his prone position to make depth 160 feet. The diving officer of the watch, in amidst all the commotion and noise and shock, for whatever reason, doesn't hear that, uh, but he's on board with going to the surface. Sonar reports degradation off the bow sonar. Sonar essentially at this point is blind with that one sensor. And uh, there's also a loss of indication of speed because whenever they ran aground, they, ri they ripped off the speed indicator. So at 0619, USS Connecticut's going to the surface, boys. The diving officer of the watch has so much momentum because of the speed and the full rise on the stern planes, he can't help but breach and broach the surface now. So he announces the ship is going to the surface. Um, ship is often used for the word sub, for those of you that don't know. We just call everything ships whenever you're making formal you know, comms like this. Uh, you don't differentiate the two. Okay, so the diving officer of the watch grabs the controls, uh, but the bow planes are stowed for high speed. So uh, they don't have the bow planes extended. Therefore, the only planes they have are the stern planes. And the helmsman's already reaching back on those like his life depends on it because it does. Uh, the chief of the watch uh, initial reaction is the sound of collision alarm. So he's right on. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And he stands by the emergency blow. So he's got his hands on the chicken switches. And then he just waits for the order to actually activate them. Because once you do that, you're going to the roof. Yeah, there's no stopping that. Okay, so sonar and fire control are aligned for periscope depth. So the sonar, the weapons team is doing what they're supposed to do. Everybody's in a little bit of shock, but that training is kicking in and they're just doing their automatic immediate actions as their brain catches up and digests what's going on. Okay, the officer of the deck orders all stop in an attempt to prevent broaching because it's the speed at which they're going that's just driving them to the surface at this point. Uh, the captain enters control from his stateroom, which is right there, and announces he grabs the uh, uh, 1MC and says uh, collision uh, or an Allison or a lesion. In other words, they struck something, you know, uh, underwater. But the submarine broaches the surface anyway. 0620 Zulu, and for the next three minutes, they suffer negative buoyancy. That's a very nice way of saying they're sinking. So they do get to the surface. While they're on the surface, the WEPS, who's in control now, uh, raises the number two scope for a look around. Uh, they obtain a GPS fix, and they realize that they're uh, 1,200 yards northwest of their track, of where they think they are. They're way off course. Being off course by, you know, less than that, is still a lot. Okay. I'm not gonna go into specifics, I guess, but there you go. That is a long way to be off course. Okay. So the chief of the watch attempts to pump overboard because they're negatively buoyant after the collision and the pump, the trim pumps, for whatever reason, they aren't working properly. He checks his lineup and the investigation confirmed his lineup was proper, but yet they can't pump water overboard. So something with the trim system is damaged. Apparently they can't get water off. So now the speed drops below zero on the surface because they had ordered all stop. So they're on the surface, negatively buoyant, no speed. What is the only thing that happens? Well, you sink and they begin sinking out. They're no longer at periscope depth. Periscope is underwater. They are sinking out. Okay, so they recommend uh, all ahead standard to maintain depth. They're going to use the ship's speed to push the bow of the submarine up to the surface and try to maintain, you know, a, a surface like position where they can at least, you know, not not sink while they get things sorted out. Because the OD is injured and the WEPS is on the con, he announces that he has the con and the captain um, 
is also there. I guess the captain would technically have the constancies there. But unless the captain announced that, the weapons officer, he took over the officer deck position. Let's, let's put it that way. Because the other guy's hurt. Okay, 0624. They have lost propulsion and a loss of depth control at this point. So they're sinking past 70 feet because they had ordered the all stop. Um, they're, they're getting speed back on, though. They're trying to get that. Uh, the, the CO, who's on the con now, orders that chief of the watch with the chicken switches. He says, emergency blow all main ballast tanks. And that's what happens there. They start blowing high pressure air into the ballast tanks. Uh, the engine room reports loss of propulsion lube oil, which is huge because now you're limited in your propulsion. You know, you need to have speed to maintain depth so you don't sink because we can't pump off water. And now there's no or there is a problem with the propulsion. We won't speculate what it was because it's not in the report. Okay, so um, Chief of the Watch, uh, you know, flood made ballast tanks with high pressure air because of that uh, emergency blow and depth continues to increase despite that. So they've done the emergency blow and they're, they've slowed their descent, but they're still sinking slower down to 74 feet as recorded by the investigation. Okay, so PLO restored. The reason for the PLO rupture call from the engine room was because there was cooking oil stowed back there properly, but because of the collision, it got bounced all around and these big five gallon drums of cooking oil spewed oil everywhere, which is still a big problem because that's a flammable liquid in an engine room with a lot of hot things. But the watchstanders back there covered in this oil thought that it was propulsion lube oil, which is uh, means that the gears and everything's not being cooled. You got you can't do a lot back in the engine without this PLO oil. All right. So the engine reports, hey, propulsion lube oil restored. They don't bother explaining what happened. It's just a report. We've got propulsion back. This is great news. So they get that bell, that all ahead standard back on to push the submarine that's sinking from 74 feet back up to the surface, uh, nose high at about a 30 degree angle, nose up. And it's just going to, you know, go along like that until they sort out the trim situation. All right. So the officer of the deck orders uh, the chief of the watch to prepare a low pressure blow on all main ballast tanks. That's very different than a, a emergency blow. And I'm not going to go into that because it's not in the report. And I, I'd love to tell you about it, but I don't think I'm allowed to. <laughs> okay. Uh, 0628. Uh, the USS Connecticut is on the surface. Uh, she's held there with speed for the, for the moment. Uh, she's, She's still negatively buoyant, so she's got that up angle. And uh, they raise the high data rate mast, which is one of the radio masts, and they get on to comm so they can make the report of what's going on, but they haven't done that yet. They've just got the mast up. At 0630, uh, two minutes later, the trim system is restored. And according to the report, he solved the trim system in a very interesting way. Uh, they had two vented tanks tanks that were open to the interior pressure. And by pumping from one tank to another, that cleared whatever was keeping the trim system from operating properly. It doesn't go into any more detail than that. And I know a lot about the trim system. I can't imagine what was messing it up and I'm not allowed to speculate at this point. So we just have to know that according to the investigation, by pumping from tank to tank, that cleared up the trim system's ability to pump overboard. So they can now do that and they begin deballasting as many tanks as they can. Uh, the report says up to a hundred thousand uh, pounds of water overboard. And that doesn't happen quick by the way. So they got, this takes some time. So as that's going on um, 10 minutes later at 0640, uh, they do a voice report to CTF 74 in Japan, you know, opera, comsub land or pack rather too. 
giving them just a voice report, you know, that there's been an incident. Uh, we're investigating. We're trying to maintain, you know, ships damaged, crew injured, whatever the report is. That op rep three is a quick report. Uh, and it's required that you have a follow-up report as soon as possible. But that at least lets everybody know, hey, something happened. You don't need to go back to your stateroom and write up a formal report that takes 20, 30 minutes, send it to the radio room to then tell the Admiralty an hour after the incident that something happened. This allows them to get on the bat phone right away and say, hey, you know, commander, uh, we've had an incident. We're going to let you know what happened in a minute, but just know something something's up. That gets everyone's attention. Everyone's ears are now what's happened to the USS Connecticut at 0741. They're finally able to put a low pressure blow on all main ballast tank. And that commences. And that's really important for survivability of the ship until the machinery room catches on fire. Yeah. In less than an hour, they've had a collision loss of buoyancy, loss of ship's control and sinking, a engineering casualty, loss of propulsion lube oil, uh, which ended up not being real, but it limited speed for a little bit while they thought it was real. And now they have a very real fire in the machinery room. We are so lucky we didn't lose the submarine. Oh my God. Okay, so what happened here was the number two trim pump was already in a reduced status. Every time they operated it, there was a uh, a mechanical deficiency is what the uh, report says. Who knows? And there's a temporary standing order that if they have to ever operate this trim pump, the number two one, uh, that the watchstander will watch it closely because it tends to not work and do things. Well, the thing that it did after 40 minutes of continuous operation was catch on fire for reals. And so they called away fire and AMR. As soon as they isolated the electrical bus to the number two trim pump, um, the fire self extinguished at that point because it was electricity feeding the flame at that point. And so once they did that, they isolated the fire and uh, all is better. But now everybody's in their flash gear trying to save the submarine. Uh, just one thing after another. And this is how casualties happen. Casualties are very rarely isolated incidents. They cascade. This casualty, this collision cascaded all over the boat from the sonar being destroyed forward to the engine room, believing they had lost propulsion to the machinery room catching on fire. Everybody's having a bad time all of a sudden because casualties will cascade. And that's what's happening here. Immediate actions of this crew is outstanding and probably is what saved the ship because whenever they were losing uh, buoyancy sinking past 74 feet without propulsion they were screwed that 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 is a dying submarine whenever you do the emergency uh, blow and you still have negative buoyancy and you don't have propulsion well guess what you know you better start making plans for the next life because you're almost done with this one all right so the co orders a continuous low pressure blow on all main ballast tanks now that we're back on the surface and the fire is extinguished the officer of the deck switches his watch to the bridge where he can do a visual assessment of everything that's going on and they finally get a formal you know their version of events that happened up to this point off to ctf 40 or 74 rather and uh um remember that's the command in japan they order them to go to guam because that's the nearest uh friendly port that has repair facilities and uh, that's where they go they arrive there uh, a little less than a week later at zero um on the 8th of, 8th of october they moor in guam and that is a breakdown of everything that happened during the collision okay it's quite, quite the adventure for these. Uh, and people were, you know, hurt. Uh, none, none of these injuries were life-threatening, but you had 11 injured sailors, completely lost your bow sonar, and uh, 
you know, array. It's, it's degraded, but I mean, come on, you smashed it. Uh, and there's also seven additional sailors that they assessed over the uh, five or six days it took to get to Guam to, uh, that they needed additional mental health treatment. And I don't blame them. If I had experienced anything like this, I'd probably need some too. So, you know, it, it's good that they at least the Navy identified that and our, these sailors are going to get the help that they need because that, this is a traumatic, you know, situation that they just went through. So whenever they pulled into Guam, the divers went down to do a hull integrity check. And one of the things that they found in main ballast tank, one alpha, one Bravo, that's the very forward ballast tank right behind the sonar sphere there or large bowery, whatever they call it. Now it's different now than it used to be. Um, there's like gravel and sand in the main ballast tank, meaning they plowed like a bulldozer right into the bottom or right into a, a bathymetric feature, you know, that they call it here. Okay, this could have resulted in the loss of life and almost resulted in the loss of the sub. And if it wasn't for the immediate actions of the crew that are drilled into them, you know, dozens and dozens of times every year, uh, if it wasn't for those immediate actions, we might have lost the submarine. But thankfully, enough people did the right thing and enough systems worked just in time to, to save the submarine and the lives of everyone on board. All right, so let's talk about the, uh, what the Navy think the causes were. This is, this is not my opinion. This is from the investigation. And uh, one of the key phrases in the uh, summary is they do what's called peak to perform. And that means you're only performing at your best, which should be every day on a submarine, when you're being inspected. And looking at the inspection reports that's in this investigation, when they didn't react to things like a yellow and red sounding, didn't investigate those things, then they're not performing very well even at their peak in terms of navigation. Again, navigation is just one small slice of the entire submarine's operations. And it appears everybody else was doing what they're supposed to be doing. All right. So command performed at its highest ability during inspections, but did not maintain that standard day to day. That's from the investigation. They also said failure to meet safe navigation standards, failure to properly mark at least 10 charted hazards. So there ended up being more than five after the investigation looked at it. Uh, Use of a temporary route instead of updating the NAF plan. And we talked about that. Uh, The CO... Um, like I said, did not expect them to update the NAF plan every time they wanted to change or get off the path. And that was the CO's call. Uh, but it resulted in this, you know, was a major contributor to, to this happening. Uh, the navigation team did not understand where they were, that, that they were in restricted waters because they had gone through some of those restricted areas. And because they didn't have an accurate sounding, they didn't realize how much in peril the ship was as the bottom was coming shallower and shallower over at least an hour's time, if not longer that they didn't, they were not aware of their impending grounding. Okay. The ANAV effectively prevented the quartermaster from marking navigation hazards for two hours prior to grounding. That goes back to where at right after four o'clock, he told him to remove that, um, you know, hazards overlay. You remember that? That's what that refers to the, the ANAV made a lot of mistakes uh, and the quartermaster did too. And so this is really a failure. If you look at this from the top and from the bottom coming together, you know, the, the squadron, the submarine development squadron commander tried three times to inform those above him, ComSub PAC and CTF-74, that there were issues and they shut him down because he's getting ready to get you know, relieved anyway. And uh, they, they authorized this to go to sea. And then from the bottom, from the deck plate level where I lived, you know, the quartermaster and especially the ANAV, who's an enlisted man, by the way, but he's senior enlisted and specially qualified to be an ANAV, really failed to perform their duties by simply informing people that there were no soundings for hours, which is insane. Like the moment that happens, you inform people, you don't wait. Okay. 
Okay, the quartermaster was updating temporary routes instead of uh, operating the fathometer. So because they had to do these temporary routes uh, to go around these navigation hazards, he wasn't paying as much attention to the fathometer as he's required to be. Uh, failure to shift fathometer to shallow mode uh, caused loss of sounding. So something that shocked me here is because the bottom was getting closer and closer to the bottom of the submarine, right? That gap is getting closer and closer. They were in deep mode on the fathometer, according to the report, and they never switched to shallow mode. And because of that, because they were in that wrong deep shallow mode, they would never see the bottom because it requires things. I can't get into it. Shoot. Um, Okay, finally, he says, when the uh, sounding did not check with chart, they didn't take further action, and I beat that to death. So there you go. That's from the investigation. Aftermath. What happened? Boy, everybody got fired. That's what happened. All right, the captain gets fired. The XO gets fired. Um, the navigator got fired. The engineer, who was the officer of the deck at the time, he got fired. The ANAV got fired. Uh, the quartermaster, he just went to captain's mast. You know, they figured he could stay, I guess. <laughs> There was no explanation given. This is just the results. And then finally, the, the Cobb. Remember, the Cobb is the uh, senior enlisted man. He's responsible for the crew's performance and to communicate with the captain, you know, the crew's needs and things like that. He also went to, uh, or he did not go to UC, um, NJP. He just had an administrative uh, letter put in his, his record. He was administratively counseled. And then he was also relieved as the USS Connecticut, uh, from the USS Connecticut. Um, there is a footnote in the inspection or investigation rather that says that he is being re um, verified or qualified to go to go back to the USS Connecticut as Cobb. I don't know at the time of this recording if that happened or not, um, but that that is one of the processes that they were going to do with the Cobb is just reevaluate him because he's not part of any of the NJPs. He didn't violate the UCMJ. Um, so maybe he could go back to the cop. If anyone knows, I know some people from the USS Connecticut watched my other videos about the story. If you guys know what happened to the cop, I would like to know, cause he's a senior chief sonarman who I think I know. Um, I, I knew him in my case as a junior sailor and uh, he ended up being the cop of the Connecticut. Anyway, so final thoughts. All right. So here's, here's my two cents. Uh, this failure of command at, you know, command levels and navigation levels. Yeah. I, I would love to say it's a failure of all levels, but it's not. Because um, the chief of the watch and the dive team, uh, the you know the the, the nav not the navigation team, but the ship's control party. That's what I'm trying to say. Did the right actions. They saved the ship. Um, because the machinery watch was attentive and put that fire out right away by isolating the electrical bus to the uh, number two trim pump. Uh, he he did the right thing and saved the ship too. Because the people covered in oil in the engine room after the collision realized that they still had a, a, a propulsion system that worked and the oil that they had on them was cooking oil, not lubricating oil for the engines um, because they restored propulsion as quickly as they did. That definitely saved the ship. So a lot of people did the right things guys, but the people who did not do is the command structure itself. And especially the navigation teams, uh, they just did not, according to this investigation, they did not do their jobs. Um, the inability to self-critique, change, and improve goes back to training and getting better. Uh, they definitely suffered from overconfidence. And like I said, I've seen this myself in programs where you have an elite force. inside. The submarine force considers itself an elite force. I think maybe all forces kind of do that to an extent. But whenever it comes to SSGNs and any kind of development squadron, like the Seawolf squadron, you know, CSDS-5, um, you know, out on, on the West Coast, they really think just because they get assigned to that boat, the enlisted anyway, 
that they're special, that they got those orders because they're better than everybody else can be the mentality of a lot of sailors. It's not every one of them, of course, uh, but I've seen it myself. So don't argue with me that it doesn't happen because it does. Anyway, that overconfidence led to their inability to recognize key indicators that the ship was in danger. Yeah, that's called hubris at that point. Construction of standards saved the vessel. Immediate action saved the crew. And it could have been much worse. We could have lost the ship. We could have lost the crew. And we almost did. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. I really appreciate this. This has been the USS Connecticut final investigation report uh, as declassified by the Navy, fully redacted. Please leave a comment and a like, and I'll see you in the next video. Have a great one, everybody. Bye. Amazing, isn't it? I told you. So you're you're transiting through what do you say five different areas where their their navigational charts aren't great, and it's like you're you're not paying attention. It's like th there's nothing there's nothing here here. And so, <laughs> again, that's the same behavior that caused the collision on the McCain. The same, you know, behavior that caused a collision on the Fitzgerald. And it's just, it's amateur hour and it's embarrassing. But that is, and again, you look at, you know, a... An Amtrak sinking off the coast of California, and look at you look at all the mistakes that went into that. And and that military is going to take take on the Chinese. Yeah, I don't think so. Or if it does, it's not going to work out well. You know, and, and, and the optimum end of, end of that is we'll suffer a lot more casualties um, than we have to, than we should. And we'll do that because as a culture, we don't embrace things like hard work. We don't embrace things like uh, toughness. It's all about your feelings and your rights and not working you too hard and making sure you have enough time to play your video games and and email or text so on that note i'm mike mcnamara of the salt marine radio i'll be back with grant on wednesday have a great couple days i'm out